With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to your Monday edition of the Two-Footed Podcast. It is the 30th of November. We are almost in December. The run-up to Christmas is upon us. But we've got plenty of football to talk about in the meantime. We're brought to you, as always, by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, so do check out their services at LibertyShield.com and use my code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. Lots to talk about. Eight games in the books for this weekend. Two more to come tonight, but they can wait till tomorrow. There's a lot of talking points coming out of the eight games that we saw. We'll start with Friday night. Crystal Palace play host to Newcastle. And this turned out to be a surprisingly decent game of football. Despite the fact that it's Steve Bruce visiting the home of the Hodge. This was actually a good game of football. It was enjoyable to watch. I thought Palace were the better team for the majority of this game. I thought they created the better chances, thought they dominated the play. And I thought that Eberichi Easy really looked like he was a step above everybody else on the pitch. Carl Darlow made some very, very good saves to keep Newcastle in the game. But what it really came down to was Newcastle having a reliable goal-scoring threat and Palace being without one. No Michi Batshuayi in the starting team for Palace. No Wilf Zaha once again. And unfortunately for them, Andros Townsend, Jordan Ayew, and Jeff Schlupp are all a little bit wasteful in front of goal. Uh, ben Teke was very wasteful in front of goal when he came on as well. Whereas for Newcastle, Callum Wilson continues to look like one of the best signings of the season. And his partnership in a front two with Jolington brought the best from both of them. Jolington is much more comfortable as a second striker playing just off somebody. That's what he did at Hoffenheim. He actually played off two. He played a role very similar to what we see Roberto Firmino play for Liverpool. Almost like a false nine who drops back into midfield to turn the midfield from a three to a diamond. That's what he was best at. And Newcastle seemed to finally realise this guy's not a number nine. Despite his 
build and you know the makeup of his game. He's not a number nine. He is much better off that number nine. And Callum Wilson, I mean his his form this season has been excellent. I mean they paid twenty million for him, and there's a lot of clubs that really could have done with him. I, I thought at the time for Brighton he would have been a really good option, but he's already got seven goals this season. Consider he only got nine in all of last season. It'll tell you how well he's playing. His his um career high in the Premier League is 14, 15 in all competitions. He's obviously had a better season in the Championship and in League One, but those levels aren't comparable to where, where we are with the Premier League right now. He is on on pace to have the season of his career. And he may be just a little bit unfortunate in that Danny Ings is in great form, and when he comes back from injury, you'd expect him to continue. Dominic Calvert-Lewin's in great form, and obviously with Harry Kane, that those three, Ings, Calvert-Lewin, and Kane, plus Marcus Rashford, could well be England's strikers or attackers to go to the Euros. But Callum Wilson is going to push them all the way. He is going to push them all the way. He's in tremendous form. Jolington gets a goal and an assist, sets up the goal for for Wilson, and then um, with a little bit of good fortune, gets himself uh, a goal as well to seal the deal. Both goals coming very, very late on. I thought Palace paid the price for the age of their defence, if I'm honest. Nathaniel Klein, Scott Dan, and Gary Cahill all had good games for about 80 minutes, and then they all started to flag. Nathaniel Klein looks like a guy that hasn't played a lot of football in the last two years. Scott Dan looked like a guy who just come back from injury, and, and the same with Gary Cahill. I mean, Gary Cahill, he's he's been around a long time, and there's only so many miles that you can put on somebody, and he's, he is 34 now. He's played a lot of top-flight football. And I thought for the last 10 minutes, that back three, that, sorry, those those three defenders were really struggling to deal with any sort of pace when Newcastle went up through the gears. Um, This is a great win for Newcastle. I think they'll be absolutely thrilled. They jump to 13th in the league. Palace drop to 15th. I think Newcastle will be thrilled with this result. And, um, you know, for Palace, they can they can take plenty of positives from it. The performance was good. As I said, Easy played very, very well, had some wonderful moments in the game. I think they've looked better with Koyate at centre-back. They pushed him back into midfield. I think they look better with him at centre-back because they get someone who plays out from the back. But, look, it's it's all a learning experience and they'll they'll tinker around and Hodgie will change a few things and they'll get Zaha back and hopefully get Batshuayi in the team because I think if you take the team that played in that game and make two or three changes you could have a decent team for Palace you really could and there's you know there's the likes of Nathan Ferguson to come into this team whenever he gets fit and they do have Mitchell there as their long-term left back there's a lot of promising signs for Crystal Palace uh moving to Saturday First game of the weekend, of the, the actual weekend, was Brighton versus Liverpool. Um, there's two sides to look at this, and I'm not going to take the, the biased Liverpool side, unfortunately. Look, I don't know 
about the Salah one. I can't figure out if it's offside or not. The line off Ben White doesn't look like it's from the last point of his body. But I'm not going to argue with it too much because I don't think Liverpool deserve to win the game. I thought Brighton matched them. Were unfortunate to miss a pen- an early penalty when um, Nico Williams clumsily uh, commits the foul. Neil Mopé tries to pass the ball into the corner, passes it wide. Brighton were brave in this game. I mean, they went with three out-and-out strikers. They went with Pascal Grouse in midfield, so another attacking player. Uh, they did move Veltman to wing back to uh, replace Lamptey, and I think if they'd had Lamptey, they would have caused Liverpool real problems. But I, I expected them to be more defensive, and they weren't. They, you know, they just they stuck to what they've been doing. Graham Potter stuck to what he believes in, and I thought they played really well. They had 11 shots to Liverpool's six. They had three on target to Liverpool's two. Yes, Liverpool had more possession, but they did very little with it. Lots of empty possessions, especially second half. Especially second half. Um, Just passing for the purpose of passing, not passing to actually create anything or do anything. Liverpool will feel aggrieved a little bit. Um, The Danny Welbeck penalty, the one that gets given... In the second half, that Brighton equalised from after Diogo Jota has put Liverpool in front with a really good goal. And the more I see Jota, he's basically Pedro, not the one at Chelsea, the one at Barca from like 09 to 14. That Pedro is so similar to what we see with Jota, a game based on pace and movement and being two footed, good finisher, an accurate finisher putting the ball in the corners. Um, not the best in terms of the build-up play, but adding that to his game. And, and Liverpool have gotten themselves a hell of a player in Jota. But the Danny Welbeck penalty. I think it is a penalty, but you do have to look at the fact that no Brighton player appealed for it. Welbeck, kind of in a delayed reaction, threw himself to the ground, did a little roll, but then got up and carried on. Didn't really appeal for anything. So, to me, it's a strange one. And Jordan Henderson came out after the game and said that some of the Brighton players told him it wasn't a penalty. Um, It's a weird one. Andy Robertson clearly makes contact with Welbeck's foot. Liverpool did get a penalty for not the same thing, but something similar enough earlier this season. Um, as I said, I don't think Liverpool deserve to win the game. I don't think they played well enough. So I'm, I'm not overly aggrieved by the outcome. But the Salah offside is just is strange to me because the line doesn't make make sense. And there's another game this weekend where the same thing happened, where they didn't appear to, to draw the line for the defender from the last point of his body, but they did from the attacker, the furthest point from his body, but they did for the attacker. So that's just a little bit strange. It's a little bit inconsistent. Um, then we got City against Burnley. Uh, guy joked at me on, on Friday that City had beaten them 5-0 the last two seasons. I said, oh, they won't beat them 5-0 again this weekend. No chance. And they did. They beat them 5-0 again. 
Um, signs of life from City, finally. It's only taken them nine games. But signs of life that City have found a little bit of their attacking thrust and impetus. Um, aided and abetted, it must be said, by some comedy defending from Burnley. There's at least three of the goals that you can mark down to just horror shows defensively. And the Bailey Peacock Farrell did his very, very best to score an own goal and, and give them a sixth. I'm not sure why uh, the VAR screen had anything to do with Gabby Jesus up on it for that goal because he misses his chance. He misses his sitter. Peacock Farrell saves it, seems to try and pick it up or whatever, and then knees it back towards the goal. Um, but it's given offside. But City played some really nice football, and we saw Kevin De Bruyne put in one of his better performances this season, given a lot of time and space to do so, but, but played very well. Riyad Mahrez obviously gets the hat-trick and, again, played very well. Ferran Torres did well. Um, Phil Foden comes on and a lovely, a lovely assist for um, Maris's hat trick goal. But yeah, this was just it was a good performance from City. It was a dreadful performance from Burnley, and I think Sean Dyche is going to have to really, really start cracking the whip there. Uh, it's unacceptable for Burnley to have conceded seventeen goals so far this season. Because if they're not good defensively, they're just not good. Because they don't have the attacking players to carry them. Dwight McNeil is a tremendous young player, and I do like Chris Wood. But outside of that, there's no one there that I think, if the whole Burnley squad was put up for sale, there's no one else, from an attacking point of view, I think would attract top-half teams or the majority of the league. Ashley Barnes is okay, but he's just okay. Goodmanson is okay, but he's just okay. Goodmanson's issue is that he just can't stay fit enough. If he could stay fit constantly and really develop into the player he should be, he'd be a very good player. Um, Burnley's strength has always been that defence. Especially the centre of it. We saw Tarkovsky and me absolutely all over the place. The lack of Nick Pope is obviously a huge loss. Peacock Farrell needs to be better, though. They paid £11 million for him. He needs to get better, and he needs to do it quick. Whether he needs a loan, and whether they should maybe look to loan in a more experienced goalkeeper who can act as a backup to Nick Pope, I'm not sure. But they need to address that situation. They need to do it quite quickly as well, because, you know... It, Things are looking bad. They're third from bottom. Falling behind West Brom now. It's not ideal for them. Um, after that, I think we had the most entertaining game of the weekend. Um, Everton against Leeds United. This was a, a, a really entertaining end-to-end game. 38 shots in the, in the game. 14 on target. Leeds, 23 shots. To Everton's 15. 59% of the possession, which away from home is staggering. Um, but Everton did have more shots on target. They also had two goals disallowed. Now, I think the Hamas Rodriguez one is, is, again, it's questionable. For me, that's, it's up there with the Salah one, where I don't know that they've drawn the line in the correct spot. I don't know that it looks like you've 
you've picked the furthest out of the, the, the last point of the defender's body. It doesn't look to me like they have. Um, so that's, that's the only contentious moment for me in this game. Um, Richarlison obviously scores the second, but Ben Godfrey is, is offside. He's into, and he's deemed to be interfering with play. And, and I don't really have any issue with that at all. But the first one that the Hammers Rodriguez goal, I do think that's a little bit questionable as well, just like the Salah one. But again, I, I don't know that Everton deserved anything from the game. I, I do think Leeds were the better team. I thought Pickford had the, the bigger saves to make, the more difficult saves to make. Um, Patrick Bamford should have scored a couple and stole one right off the toe of Luke Ayling as well, which Ayling was, was rightly furious about. But this was a really entertaining game. I mean, this was Leeds being Leeds. This was Leeds doing all the things that we talk about them doing, the hyper-aggressive man-to-man marking. They, you know, Calvin Phillips back was huge. The difference in that team when he plays and when he doesn't is sensational. You'll have to excuse Molly. She's seen something out the window and has decided to shout at it for no reason at all. Um, right. After that, then the final game of Saturday, West Brom against Sheffield United, a battle at the bottom of the table. And uh, it, it, it looked like it. <laughs> this game was played by two teams very much at the bottom of the table. Loads of shots again, like the Everton game, 38 shots. But Sheffield United, I mean, if you want to talk about wasteful and a complete inability to finish chances, just go and watch that Sheffield United performance. I mean, they could have had five, six, seven. Now, don't get me wrong, West Brom could have had, you know, four or five. But Sheffield United played like a team desperately needed the win until they got into that final third. And then they played like a team desperately in need of the win. And the pressure got to them because some of the chances they missed, uh, be it Ollie Burke, Lise Mousset, George Baldock missed an absolute sitter. Um, they didn't start Ryan Brewster. They brought him on and they all, uh, they brought on Mousset as well. They need to get them two in the starting team. Ollie McBurney missed a big, big chance as well. They looked good in defensively for the most part. They looked good in midfield. They looked really good in midfield. I thought that was one of the better performances in midfield that we've seen from Sheffield United this season. Sander Berger, John Fleck and, and Ollie Norwood all played well. Johnny Lundstrom came off the bench. He played well. The wingbacks did well. Max Lowe, really good performance. His best since signing there. But as soon as the ball got into the final third, they just seemed to freeze. They did all the hard work in setting up the chance, getting themselves in a position to score. And they just fluffed their lines over and over again. Sam Johnston, in, in credit to him, made a couple of good saves. But nothing that you'd look at and say, oh, wow, like that's an amazing save. They were just good, you know, slightly better than routine saves. And um, they lose again. West Brom get the goal early on from Conor Gallagher. It's um, 
I think it missed it. I think it looks like it hits his shin and bobbles its way 20 yards into the bottom corner. I would be asking serious questions about how that managed to get the goal traveling so slowly. But it does, and it's a big goal for them. It's a huge win for West Brom. It is a huge win for West Brom. It takes a lot of pressure off them. Gives them their... Not not that they're out of the mix now. They're, you know, they're only 17th in Fulham. And Burnley have a game in hand on them as things stand. Fulham obviously play tonight. Burnley's game in hand is against Manchester United. But just to get that first win is huge. Um, And it leaves Sheffield United as the only team in the division without a win. One point. One point from 10 games. It's so disappointing. I, I was really excited for them this year. I really, really, really was. And you know, what really annoys me um, about the Sheffield United at the moment is not a lot of people seem to be taking it seriously as to how much trouble they're actually in. And a lot of people seem to be distracted by this whole Chris Wilder versus Jurgen Klopp debacle. Um, and I, I have to say, I know he's the manager of the club I support, but I, I do think Jurgen Klopp is correct. And I'm, I don't think I'm being biased there. There's 16 of the 20 managers are in favour of five substitutions. Chris Wilder needs to have a quick look at his team and realise that five substitutions will actually help him as well. Like, he could have brought on Ben Osborne and David McGoldrick late in that game to give himself more options. He's got injury issues at the back. He could have dusted off Phil Jagielka and rolled him onto the pitch just to maybe rest somebody. Because at the end of the day, it's not about being able to throw on five world-class players. There's only, there's only really one club that can do that in the league, and that's City. And even then, they don't have that at the moment. Like it's, They don't have the depth at the moment. Chelsea have a a great squad, but again, it's not about being able to roll on five top-class players. It's about being able to protect lads on the pitch so they don't get injured. Liverpool got James Milner injured this weekend. He goes on to the list of of players that are going to be out for a substantial period of time with a hamstring injury. I'm not sure who it is that's going to explain to James Milner what an injury is. It's, It's a concept foreign to Mr. Milner. I also didn't know that there was there were muscles in granite. So, you know, it was a surprise to me when I heard he had a hamstring injury. Um, but they could have had him off the field. They could have had Andy Robertson off the field before he, in a very tired way, swings his boot and catches Danny Welbeck. And for Sheffield United, they could have freshened things up. It's... I don't understand what Chris Wilder's problem is. You're bottom of the league. You've got one point from ten games. It's not working as it is now. Three subs isn't working for you, mate. If someone's going to let you have five, take them. If they're going to let you have a slight advantage on what you are now, take it. Because as things stand, Sheffield United are going to end the season as the worst Premier League team in history. They're going to beat Sunderland's 
horrendous season. Derby's horrendous season. One point from 10 games. Four goals scored. Four. And he's arguing over five substitutions and calling someone else selfish. You're blocking it. You're the selfish one. Not not the guy you claim is the selfish one. I'd imagine the other managers maybe blocking it are probably dicey. Um, my guess would be Roy Hodgson, who would be in favour of going back to the days of one substitute. Or no substitutions. Um, and God knows who the, who the other one is. It Again, it's probably someone at the bottom of the league, but it just makes no sense. Probably Scott Parker, because, you know, like when, when he first started playing football before the war, there were no substitutions. Obviously, then he went off and was a hero in World War II uh, and then came back and, and, you know, restarted his career and was there for the whole substitution era. But Scott Parker may well be doing But again, Scott Parker is very close. From all I hear, he's very close to losing his job. And there are serious conversations taking place at Fulham over Scott Parker. By the way, the owners of Fulham just fired the general manager of the Jacksonville Jaguars for doing exactly as they instructed and losing regularly because they're trying to tank to get one of the top quarterbacks in next year's draft, either Trevor Lawrence or the kid from Ohio State. So he did what he was told to do, clear out the roster, get rid of as much as you can, be you know, competitive but bad and lose games. He did what he was asked. He got fired. If Scott Parker thinks he's safe, he's got another thing coming. And as I said, I've heard from a couple of people, a couple of journalists that cover the Fulham beat. There's a lot of talk that Scott Parker is very close to the door. So it, it is what it is. They're not going to change. Um, they have their view that it shouldn't be five subs. I think the rest of the league just needs to override them, if I'm honest. Five subs is necessary at this point. Um, into Sunday, and uh, three games, two worthy of, of of conversation, the other not so much. But the first game, Southampton versus Manchester United, the game of two halves, the, the classic game of two halves. First half, United were atrocious, utterly atrocious. And um, Southampton get into a tuna lead with goals from Bednarak and James Ward-Prowse and look like they're they're comfortable. United aren't really causing any problems. They did have one good opportunity uh, that was gifted to them by Alex McCarthy, but McCarthy then makes a very good double save to stop Greenwood and then Marcus Rashford. But United just looked all at sea, as as they have done for the majority of this Premier League season. I saw someone yesterday try to claim that Harry Maguire has been playing stellar football for months. I just watched the first half and tell me that again. He's all at sea defensively. Alex Tellez, good going forward, hopeless defensively. The midfield, unbalanced in the first half. It did improve second half, but there was a slight switch to it. But at halftime, uh, Ollie makes the change, takes off Greenwood, brings on Cavani. And the game changes completely from there. Um, Cavani makes the first for Bruno Fernandes, scores the second. 
and then scores the winner right at the death. They changed the midfield from what had been a 3-1 into more of a diamond with, with Matic sitting a little bit deeper. Van de Beek and Fred getting forward in, in support of the attack a bit more. Uh, United were much, much better second half. It was a good second half performance. And truth be told, over the 90 minutes, they deserved the win. But Southampton, they've got big questions to ask to answer. Defensively, they just fell apart. And Yannick Vestergaard, I mean, how he is still a Premier League player, I, I really do struggle to understand. The guy has never been good enough. Continually lets his team down. He is so flat-footed and slow. He's about 11 yards behind his defence at one point, and he could cost him a goal. I don't know what he's what he's doing in the team. I know they don't have a whole lot of better options at the minute, but Jack Stevens is better than him. Jack Stevens just is better than him. And when Salisu is fit and comes back, uh, Salisu will, will hopefully take his place and we won't have to see Vestigard again. Vestigard belonged in that group with Wesley Hoyt and Carrillo and all the other lads they wasted money on. I think they paid 17 million for Vestigard. He's just, he's just not a good defender. He really is not a good defender. And the sooner they get him out of the team, the sooner Southampton can continue to get better and develop under Ralph. Um, but for United, it's a really promising win. It really helps them out and it pushes them up the table. They jump into eighth and they have a game in hand. And like I said, that game in hand is against Burnley. So you'd expect them to win that game. And if they won that game in hand, they could potentially be top four. Uh, depending on how Leicester do against Brighton or against Fulham, assuming Le- Leicester will beat Fulham, it would jump United into fifth, which I think Ollie would take at this point in the season, especially given how awful United have been. I think he would take it. Um, the other talking point that came out of this game, then, I don't really want to get into this too deeply. Edinson Cavani put up a post on Instagram. Uh, and used a certain phrase or certain word that has sent social media into a spin. It is the same word that Luis Suarez said to Patrice Evra that got Luis Suarez an eight-game ban all those years ago. Now, number one, let's be very clear, that word is not acceptable in European culture. It's just not acceptable. But we also have to acknowledge that that word is socially seen as acceptable in Uruguayan culture. And what always bothered me about the Suarez investigation is they didn't have their their Spanish language expert wasn't from Uruguay. They didn't speak to anybody from Uruguay. They spoke to somebody who was English, who had learned Spanish and then studied in Colombia, which is a different country with different slang, different nuance, different culture. It would be like asking me to break down a conversation by Americans. We speak the same language, 
but we have different nuance, different slang, different culture. I didn't have a problem with Suarez getting banned if he said it, he said it. And clearly when Suarez was saying it, there was there was aggro between him and Ever. They were they were arguing. Cavani has said it in a, a friendly way to one of his teammates, thanking him, I, I think, for the cross that uh, that enabled him to score the winner. The post has been removed, and it appears like Cavani has been told, look, you can't say that. Now, I will say, both Cavani and Suarez had been in Europe. Cavani's been in Europe for 11, 12 years at this point. Suarez had been in Europe for probably... Six years at that point, maybe seven, six or seven years. So they they should know better. They should have been told. But there's other like I mean, there's a lot of other things from other cultures that those of us from the Western world will look at and say that's weird, that's odd. You shouldn't do that. You you think of like ceremonial African scarring. Those of us from Ireland and England will look at and say that's kind of barbaric. And you know, if you're in Europe, maybe you shouldn't do that anymore. But it is a part of culture. I'm not equating that to this, but we have to be a little bit more understanding of other cultures. I don't want to jump at Edison Cavani and condemn him as a racist because I don't believe he is a racist. In the same way, I don't believe Luis Suarez to be a racist. Cavani may find himself in trouble. It, it's been said that the FA are, are launching an investigation. I'm not sure what there is to investigate. He put up a, an Instagram post. It, it's plain and simple. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about what he did. And it's clear there's no negative connotation from his side as to what he's saying. He's tanking a teammate, I think simply, you know, a, a little sit down, a talking to for Mr. Cavani, um, it, it should suffice. I, I don't think it's something that we all need to get ourselves in a flap over. I certainly don't think the idea of calling for him to get banned is in any way sensible. I, as I said, I, I don't think Edinson Cavani is, is, had, had any malice or any bad intention or, or anything like that in, in his post. And, you know, I, I think we all just need to calm down a little bit with these things. Uh, Chelsea versus Tottenham was next. And, um, this was, this was the snoozer of the weekend. This was the, uh, the dullest of dull affairs. Chelsea had more of the possession. Spurs were happy to let them have that possession. Neither team really created anything. Hugo Lloris made one good save. Mendy made one good save. But all in all, it was a bit of a stinker. Mourinho turned up to do what Mourinho does in away games against big clubs. And Lampard didn't have the tactical know-how to figure out a way around it. Um... Chelsea looked very ordinary in attack, it must be said. I, I didn't think the um, the front three worked well at all. Zayic and Werner had poor games. Tammy Abraham at least gave the centre-backs a bit of a worrisome afternoon. But this was, I mean, this was Joe Roden and Eric Dyer. 
this was, you know, their second, I would say their second choice partnership. I would say Toby and Davinson is their best partnership, even though Dyer does start most games under Jose, because I think he might be Jose's son. Um, this game, the, the, the kind of the talking point from this game, uh, similar to the Cavani thing, and again, it's Tim Sherwood, that noted genius, said in part of his commentary about the game over the weekend that Tangai Endembele is a less technical player than Eric Lamella and is more similar to Moussa Sissoko. Now, what Tim Sherwood has done here, and it's not the first time, is he's bought into a racial stereotype. He has looked at one man and seen him as a tall, black, athletic man who's a powerful runner. Not the best on the ball. And then he's looked at another tall black man and he's thought, well, they're the same. They're the same. Tangoy Endembele, you're the same as him. He did it before with Kante and, and Nabi Keita, where he said Nabi Keita was the same type of player as N'Golo Kante, despite being a completely different type of player. And Tangoy Endembele is a completely different type of player than Moussa Sissoko. And, and Tangoy Endembele is one of the most technically gifted midfielders in the Premier League. Again, I, I don't think Tim Sherwood is in any way racist, but he has bought into a racial stereotype, a lazy stereotype. And unfortunately, it, it he said it on national television. Um, I, 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 I don't know if, if Tangoy Endembele is more or less technically gifted than Eric Lamella. I do think Eric Lamella, from a technical point of view, is tremendously talented. He just has always struggled to produce regularly in the Premier League. But it's just... It's typical of the punditry we see so regularly that uninformed opinions like that of Tim Sherwood on Tangai Endembele, on Naby Keita a couple of years ago, are frequently put out into the ether. ether. I, I, I just... I'd love to hear him give more of an explanation. I really would. I want to hear him break down what he thinks Tangai Endembele's game is. So that I could, you know, somebody can then educate him. On why he's wrong. It it struck me as a very lazy opinion. Somebody who hasn't watched a whole lot of the player. And certainly didn't watch him at Leon. I don't imagine Tactics Timmy sits down of a weekend and watches the French League. Um, so I'd imagine if you said to him, you know, about Eduardo Camavinga. You know, who's he like? He'd probably say, oh, well, he's like Mrs. Zoko as well. Um, so it's just, it's silly. It is silly. But we regularly see these types of racial stereotypes in football. 
And there's just no place for them anymore because the modern game is so different to what it was when they played. I mean, Tim Sherwood, it would be very easy for me to cast him as, you know, a no-talent lad who went out and kicked people and just ran a lot. But that's not what he was. A lot of players who looked like him at the time played his position were no-talent kickers. David Batty, for example, no-talent kicker. Vinnie Jones, any every team had one at one point or another. Lads that weren't very good but could run a lot and would kick lumps out of other people. But Tim Sherwood could pass the ball. Tim Sherwood was a good footballer. Batty did the kicking next to him. Tim Sherwood either... Firstly, he shouldn't really be on television because his opinions are largely dreadful, but that type of thing, you just need someone needs to educate him. Someone needs to tell him you can't you can't buy into that nonsense anymore, Tim. Twenty twenty. Um final game of the weekend. And I suppose the one with the biggest talking point from the weekend, and we'll start by just wishing Raul Jimenez, the best in his recovery. He has a fractured skull. Um, not sure of the severity of it yet, but anytime you fracture your skull, it's not good. Uh, it, it, it's going to affect his career one way or another. We can only hope he makes a full recovery because what a great player he's developed into. And he just signed a big new contract in the summer and everything was going so well for him. And, it's a huge blow for him. It's a huge blow for the Premier League. It's obviously a huge blow for Wolves. But just from a, a human point of view, you want to see him make a full recovery. You don't want to see him having any lasting effects that carry over into his personal life, whatever about his career, his contract to be guaranteed. But you don't want to see this affect his quality of life in any way. It's a very, very distressing moment to see him carried off the field on a stretcher, unconscious, and being put straight into an ambulance and brought to brought to hospital um the game seemed seemed then and seems now very insignificant um but the talking point is the fact that the guy he had the clash of heads with david louise was allowed to continue now just imagine how hard you have to hit somebody in the head to fracture their skull now imagine the damage you'd have done to your own body part, and then imagine it's your own head, and then imagine you tried to play football afterwards while still bleeding, and nobody took you off the field. A few years back, Hugo Lloris got knocked clean unconscious against Everton. He came out to smother the ball, and Romelu Lukaku's knee made contact with the side of his face, knocked him unconscious. When they eventually woke him up and he got back on his feet, he insisted that he was playing on and he was allowed to play on. And I think the doctor from that day he should have been fired. I think Maurizio Pochettino, or was it VS Boas, I can't remember which, should have been dragged across the coals for allowing him to play on. Well, the doctor that agreed to allow him to play on needs to be fired in this instance. And... Mikel Arteta needs to be dragged across the coast. That man played on till half time, still bleeding. Almost certainly seeing at least double. 
Like, think about how hard his head had to have hit Raul Jimenez's, the fracture Jimenez's skull. Just think about that for one second. The protocols in the Premier League and in football in general for dealing with head injuries are a disgrace because there aren't any. They just don't exist. Every single Premier League game needs to have an independent doctor on location to deal with head injuries. To take the decision out of the player's hand because the player will always want to play on. The player should have no say. The manager should have no say. And the team doctor who will bow to pressure from the player or the manager because they have to work with them Monday to Friday as well as weekends. They're going to bow to pressure. They're going to do what others want them to do, not what they think is right. We see it over and over again. There needs to be an independent panel of doctors formed to deal with head injuries. To make that decision, to take that decision away from others. I also don't feel it should count as a substitution. If someone has a head injury, they just shouldn't be allowed to play anymore. Take them off, put someone else on, but you keep your three subs. Or your five subs if it goes back to that. It shouldn't count as a, as a substitution. We need to start being more protective of players. You know, we've we've seen changes made in terms of... They changed the football from the old thing they used to play with back in the 80s, which is likely a massive contributor to why we see so many players from the 60s and before, the 60s, 70s and before, get things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and dementia and different things that are linked to repeated trauma to the head from heading those big medicine balls. But now because the game is played at such a pace, the other risk is contact injury leading to things like CTE. We're not that far removed from the the Champions League final where Lloris Carius sustained a concussion. And everybody just laughed at him. Including Thibaut Courtois, who showed exactly what type of person he is with his snidey little tweet. The guy had a concussion. Didn't tell anybody because it was a Champions League final. Played on and threw in two goals. And I don't care that Liverpool lost the Champions League final. I care that that guy had a concussion and everybody laughed at him. And the effect that it had on his mental health, it's ruined his career. Because it wasn't taken seriously. The negative effects, the damage a concussion can do, as somebody who's had a number of them in their life, the damage a concussion can do is untold. Not just in terms of your long-term health, but your short-term health, your mental health. David Luiz should not have been allowed to stay on the pitch. But he was. And it's just so... It's so archaic and so stupid. Uh, Wolves get the win in this game and credit to them for them to be able to play on and put up the performance that they did um, was, was really, really impressive, it must be said. 
Uh, they bounced back very well from um, from the, the, the horrendous incident. And it, it is a horrendous incident. But Pedro Neto scores um, after Dendonker hits the crossbar. Adama Traore made such a difference in this game. I mean, when he plays, Wolves actually attack. They're not boring when he plays. And they were they were quite entertaining to watch in this game. But uh, yeah, Adama beats Kieran Tierney, gets the cross, and then Donker should score, hits the crossbar, drops to Neto, and uh, and he taps it home. It's a very good finish. Gabriel equalizes, gets um, Arsenal back in it with a powerful header. And then Wolves go down the other end of the field again and uh, counter-attack and score. Neto again involved heavily involved, Traore involved as well. The ball spills to Pedence and it is one of the best first touches you'll ever see to lift the ball over the, the over the defender and um and slide it into the back of the net and it's it's no le- no no less than they deserve. They were or no more than they deserve. I'm not sure I'm never sure what way that's said. But um yeah, I, I thought Wolves I thought Wolves were the better team. Um, the fact that that Louise was still on the field for all of this is is a disgrace. And if Arsenal are looking for reasons why they lost, having a guy on the field who's probably concussed, it is a big part of why you lost. Um, the other funny moment, well, the other the funny moment to come from this game. There's two, VAR again. Uh, how anybody could look at the. Adama Traore yellow card for diving and not realise he'd been fouled and it should have been a penalty. I have no idea. But Rob Holden then getting asked or then getting caught asking the referee how it is that a man built like Adama Traore who he describes as a, as a brick outhouse um, and how he could go down so easy. One of the, the good things about not having fans and there's not many but one of the good things about not having fans in the stadiums is you can hear the players a lot more clearly. So when he's having his um his outburst, the referee it does get picked up on uh on the ca- on camera. But um, Adam just makes such a difference for Wolves. He, he every time he picked the ball up, he was tormenting that Arsenal defence and making them look quite quite worried. There's a lot of talk after this game then about Arsenal and where they are and where they're going under Arteta. And look, as I've said before. I have more faith in Arteta than I do in, in a lot of other managers in the league because I think he has a clear vision of, of what he wants. Unfortunately for Arteta, he's working at a club with absentee owners who don't really care and there's been a lot of upheaval in the upper echelons of the club. There's, I I wouldn't have great faith in Edu as a director of football or a sporting director, whatever it is, his role is there, but he is what he is. But he's he's had to work through changes in a, in a number of positions, and Arsenal are they're a little bit schizophrenic in how they go about things. I mean, you, you see them bring in the likes of Gabriel to go with Kieran Tierney, to go with Saliba, who they bought last year, um, to go with the likes of Saka and Martinelli and Reese Nelson and. And Ketia and Willock and all these other young players that they've they've got at the club, and then they go and they give Aubameyang a big new contract and they sign William on a free and give him a big contract. You're either tr- you're either trying to rebuild long term with young players, 
or you're in win-now mode. You can't do both. You just can't do both. Willian and Aubameyang, they're win-now moves. They're the moves of a club who are fifth or sixth looking to push for top four. But everything else that Arsenal have done, including the shunning of Mesut Ozil, very much indicates that a long-term build, a slow build. Uh, the, the decision to leave Ozil out of the Premier League squad just looks more and more stupid by the week. Arsenal's lack of creativity is staggering. I think they've created the fourth least chances in the league this year, big chances. And last year they were bottom five as well. Um, but the games where he plays, he played last season, they were like top six or top eight uh, per game, big chances created per game when he was on the field. I think they have to put it back in the squad for the second half of the season. I don't see how they can work around it. I mean, Joe Willock, with the greatest respect, he's a talented, he's a talented lad. He's not a number ten. He's certainly not a creative player. He's a he's a good player in the middle of the park, but he's not a creative number ten. I don't understand really what what Arsenal have done there. But like I say, there's there's a lot of people now asking like, at what point will the pressure land on Arteta? I don't think it'll land on him anytime soon. I think he's going to get loads and loads of rope. And I think it'll be late next season or the end of next season before he's under real pressure. I think last season was a free hit, but he won the FA Cup. And that will buy him a little bit of extra runway. This season has was always about the rebuild. This is year one. And... You know, people have compared it to like Lampard and to Ollie and to Klopp and different variations. Klopp took over a better team, I think, than Obama than than um than Arteta did. Not much better, but I think marginally better. Didn't have an Aubameyang, but did have a Coutinho. You know, still had Sturridge there. Firmino was already there. Um. I think he took over a marginally better team who, remember, were only, what, 15 months, 18 months off a title challenge. So I, I do think he took off a, took over a slightly better team. Both Ollie and Lampard took over much better teams. And Lampard has spent nearly $300 million, So there's no comparison to be made there. And even though Arsenal haven't been good this season, he still won a cup, which is better than his predecessor. Lampard has made Chelsea worse. There's just no way to look at them and say that they're not worse. He took over a team that finished third and had won the Europa League. Um, you know, they're likely going to end this weekend fourth. They finished fourth last season. They've won nothing. Uh, he's working his way through. He's, he's building something of his own. And that's fair. But, you know, all we hear is, well, you can't judge Frank till next season. Well, then why are we trying to judge Arteta? Took over after Frankie spent an awful lot less money. Let's give him, let's give him time. Let's give him time. A year ago, people were saying Southampton should sack Ralph Hasenhut. A year ago, they weren't long after being walloped 9-0. 
and then putting in a performance against Everton where it looked like the team had given up on the manager. So let's give Arteta plenty of time to work and and see what he can do because something has needed to change at Arsenal for a long time. It's been stale at Arsenal for a long, long time. Fenger obviously stayed too long and then it got really toxic at the end. Emery, I mean, he's a really good Europa League manager, but aside from that, no, not for me. Can't win away from home. Just a really negative, negative style of football. And um, I think Arteta just needs time. He needs time, he needs patience, and he's going to need backing in the window. So we will leave it at that for today. Uh, that is your eight games tonight. We, of course, do have two games. We have uh, Leicester against Fulham first. West Ham against Aston Villa, the Battle of the Claret teams. Uh, should be a fun one. I'm looking forward to both games, must be said. Um be interesting to see if Fulham can, can pull off an upset here. If they do, Sheffield United might as well start packing their bags because uh, that might be them done. I don't know that they have it in them to make up any kind of gap uh, the way they've been playing. And um, let's see if West Ham can continue their good run of form. Or can Villa get back on track? That will do us for today. Um, thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you to Guy Drinkle. And thank you to Fox Hunt for our title music. I will see you tomorrow. Have yourselves a good night. Podcast Network.